Buddha outlined this path of awakening, he, he spoke really about many different doors to awakening, how people would travel their path. He spoke about the doorway of faith. He spoke about the doorway of wisdom. And he spoke about the doorway of awakening the heart. It's called Cheto Vimuti in Pali. Now, I think over time, you know, this, this particular aspect of the practice has been a little bit sort of downgraded and a kind of hierarchy has been made, you know, that insight is the thing and this other path of awakening the heart is, is something quite separate. And I think even worse over time, you know, it's almost as if these pathways to awakening the heart have been almost framed as being something suitable for very frail elderly people or little children, but not for real meditators. And when the Buddha spoke about Cheto Vimuti, the awakening of the heart, he really spoke about the landscape of kindness, the landscape of compassion, the landscape of joy, and the landscape of equanimity. And he really spoke about these not just as techniques, but as really underlying attitudes which are crucial to the whole of the path of awakening. In fact, there's one part, you know, there's a number of discourses where the Buddha talks about dry insight. And then and dry insight, he talks about just the development of insight without these informing qualities of kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. And he spoke about the opposite, which is actually not referred to as wet insight but referred to much more as an insight of richness, an insight almost of, of integrating these qualities within the whole path of awakening. Now, I think it's very important, no matter what phase of your retreat you are in, that you are reminding yourself again and again of these qualities of kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. Because it is so easy to forget them. It is just so easy when you get immersed in kind of the, the kind of intensity of your own inner process to really quite forget to ask, what is my attitude in this moment? What is the state of my mind? How am I approaching my inner world? How am I approaching the world around me? Now, I know that sometimes in practice feel, people feel a little bit confused about these qualities because clearly so central in the whole of this teaching is, is the path of renunciation. Now, I think it's very important to remember that the kind of spiritual ethos at the time of the Buddha was essentially to regard the world and everything in it as a problem, as an obstacle. Relationships were a problem. You know, the mind was a problem. The body was a problem. And so renunciation was often kind of developed in that ethos as a pathway of pushing the world away, of overcoming 
everything that gets in the way of, of awakening, suppressing even everything that gets in the way of awakening. Now, the Buddha very much challenged that, you know, and included in that kind of interpretation of renunciation was even the, the, the felt sense that, you know, the world of, of sensory pleasure was a big problem. You know, and if you are a real meditator, you didn't do sensory pleasure. The Buddha very much kind of challenged this ethos, you know, and of course quite simply stated that sensory pleasure, the lovely, the delightful, that none of this is a problem, that what really is the problem is craving. However, I think we also need to accept accept that aversion seems to be almost hardwired into our psyche. You know, it's almost like a default mechanism that we fall back on pushing away or aversion or resistance rather than, for example, joy or kindness or compassion. So it is very important to really be aware of where we start to kind of bring that sense of renunciation into the, under the sort of umbrella of aversion and tell ourselves we are letting go of something, whereas in reality we may just be not liking something and doing whatever we can to get rid of it. Now when we speak about kindness and compassion and joy and equanimity, we are really speaking about relationship, aren't we? We are speaking about the kind of relationship we have with those around us. We are speaking about the kind of relationship we have with the world. And most importantly, the kind of relationship that we have with ourselves. But it is also important to remember, joy is not just some, you know, neat, kind of euphoric state. That all of these qualities of the heart, they are actually primarily concerned with ending suffering. And they're primarily concerned with ending the suffering that is born of ill will, that is born of fear, that is born of delusion, and that is born of self-cherishing. These qualities, though, are really also concerned with ending this sense of divide between self and other. And in that sense, I think these qualities are deeply altruistic because they're concerned with the well-being of all beings and really looking at what creates that divide between self and other. And mostly what creates that divide is hatred, ill will. It is the kind of creation of self and it is fear. Now, one thing that the Buddha put out, and I think this has really been borne out by practitioners throughout time, is that none of us can choose really whether or not to engage with the world. Even if you were living in a Himalayan cave, you would be engaging with the world. No one can find that level of isolation where there is a complete surrender of relatedness. But what we can choose and what this practice encourages us to choose is really to explore how we are engaging with the world. How we are engaging with the person sitting beside us in the lunch table. You know, the slowest yogi in the world in the shower. You know, how we are engaging with the thoughts that we don't really want to have. 
how we're engaging with, with the, the body that is not cooperating, how we're engaging with the, the frustration that arises out of craving in practice when I'm not having the kind of experience I want to be having or not becoming the kind of person I think I should be. This is the classroom of kindness. This is the classroom of compassion. This is the classroom of joy. And it's certainly the classroom of equanimity. Now, in the Buddhist tradition, these, these qualities are called the Brahma-Viharas, or really the abodes of the noble ones, the abodes of the awakened ones. So they're not speaking just about techniques. You know, the whole practice of the Brahma-Viharas as techniques came in quite some time after the Buddha's death. They are really speaking about the attitudes of heart born of investigation, born of letting go, and born of cultivation. And I think most of us acknowledge that for us to really cultivate kindness or compassion or joy, for most of it involves actually a lot of letting go. And letting go involves a lot of understanding. But the letting go is not of, of relatedness. The letting go is of what fractures relatedness. Now, there's also a very strong tendency to kind of divide practices up into there is concentration practice, or there's Brahma-Vihara practices, or there's insight practices. But I think in reality, it's a kind of false separating because in, in, in reality, these, these cultivations are all very, very much interwoven. I mean, as insight practices, you can see, like, to, to cultivate joy, to cultivate compassion and equanimity, we are really looking at the causes of suffering in ourselves, and we're often looking at craving, the wanting for something other, the wanting for something to be something other. As concentration practices, certainly as techniques, they gather and cultivate the mind. But they are also cultivations. You know, I think there's too often the sense that, you know, a moment of kindness or a moment of joy or a moment of compassion is a kind of lucky accident that we, we run into every once in a while. Whereas actually the Buddha said, this is where we plant our hearts. This is where we plant our hearts. And Nyana Panikatera, in speaking about these qualities, he said, compassion guards equanimity from falling into cold indifference and keeps it from indolent or selfish isolation. Until equanimity has reached perfection, Compassion urges it to enter again and again into the adversities of the world. Joy gives to equanimity the mild serenity that softens its stern appearance. It is the divine smile on the face of the liberated one. So let's talk a little bit about this divine smile on the face of the liberated one. What is it to go through our path, to go through our day, to feel a heart that is gladdened, to feel a heart that is delighting in being awake, to feeling a heart that is able to celebrate, to appreciate. Now, the 
the, tra- the word in Pali for joy is mudita. It is mudita. It is different than piti, which is kind of rapture, a sort of euphoria. In fact, that is often said to be the near enemy of joy. And sometimes mudita, I have to say, is translated as sympathetic joy. And when I hear that translation, I get, I sort of get an inner cringe. Because I, I think sympathetic joy. You know? And in that sense, you know, sympathetic joy is said to be a, an antidote to jealousy and to envy, forms of craving. You know, I want what you have. I want to be who you, ha- you are. And certainly, you know, joy or medita is an antidote to envy and jealousy. But to make it just into this realm of how we feel about somebody else's good fortune would make mudita an uh, an anomaly in the whole range of these qualities. Because then it would just be about how I feel about you. And actually, although it's part of it, I'll read you some of the phrases that John Peacock has has uh, translated from a Sinhalese text about sympathetic joy. It says, How wonderful you are in your being. I delight that you are here. I take joy in your good fortune. May your happiness continue. Now, this is actually not a bad thing to cultivate. You know, when you're, you're kind of like a little irritated with someone, you know, or, you know, very judgmental or feel very divided or, or somewhat envious or comparing. Ah, you know, I delight that you're here. That would be something to actually really feel that, to feel that sense of celebration. But I think Mudita has much, a much wider range of, of understanding joy. That Mudita is about appreciation, the appreciation of the lovely, the appreciation of the wholesome. Mudita is about a heart that feels gladdened, expansive, spacious. Mudita is also about gratitude. So in this sense, Mudita is not just about, you know, wildly having a sort of inner party, it is actually much this quieter sense of the capacity, the joy in being awake, the joy in receiving, the, the kind of quieter joy in being able to receive whatever comes into your world. Now, as I mentioned, one, one level, mudita, is an antidote to jealousy and envy. But it is also an antidote to discontent. And for me, this is the primary, primary benefit of cultivating mudita. Have you noticed how often discontent reigns? You know, discontented with how things are, you know. Sometimes it's sort of just a kind of mild complaining voice, you know. Sometimes it's a much bigger, louder voice of discontent. This shouldn't be happening, Sometimes it's a sense of wanting, the sense of wanting that what is present in this moment is not actually enough. You know that something more is needed. 
you know, I need uh, different thoughts, I need a different landscape, I need different people, I need some kind of excitement, I need something to happen, that, that sense of quivering discontent, that how this moment is, how I am in this moment, how you are, is simply not enough. Now, in this sense, the cultivation of joy is really directly speaking to the second noble truth, that the cause of suffering is craving. The cause of suffering is this ongoing discontent of the voice of not enough. Now, that is actually quite a hard voice to be with. It's a hard inner energy to be with, to be with that energy of discontent It does ask for a lot of kindness. It does ask for a great deal of compassion. But it also says that it is here where we cultivate the gladdened heart. Here that we cultivate the gladdened heart. Now you will notice in in this sense that when there is discontent, perception becomes very selective, doesn't it? we actually only begin to see what is wrong, what is imperfect, what is unlovely, what needs fixing. And often our reaction to discontent is actually agitation. We get busy, you know, how to manipulate the moment, how to make it other than it is. Now, the cultivation of joy in the midst of discontent is actually really something to be held almost as a koan, almost as a question. And I think part of it is actually to really acknowledge the selectiveness of our perception in those moments, what we are not seeing. Now, when there is discontent and perception becomes very selective, what we do is is we kind of have this mind that is actually not perceiving that which is well even that which is lovely. Now, I always feel that when there is discontent, it is very important, actually, and part of cultivating joy is actually to quite consciously and intentionally focus and see that which is well. You know, I sit, my body's aching. Actually, is my whole body aching? What is well? To really notice that. I move through the I move through the day, you know, and I oh it's windy again, you know, and it's cloudy, you know. What is well? Even even what is lovely. Even what is lovely. You know, and nature is a tremendous ally in this because you can see when there's that agitation to somehow be able to come back and just notice that which is lovely, that which is well, that which is still. It brings into that kind of world, that consciousness, a, a shift in perception. And you can feel the calming, the quieting of the heart, and that sense of appreciation that can begin to emerge. Now, it must be said, you know, that sometimes, you know, this renunciate tradition I spoke about earlier that has really, you know, got its feet in pushing away the world. Sometimes there's a feeling that, you know, oh gosh, to notice the lovely is actually going to stimulate craving, therefore I shouldn't. That's quite a conclusion. Whereas actually there is much that is lovely in this life. There is much that is lovely in this moment. 
And to be able simply to notice that, to include it, you can, it has the effect of beginning to calm that sense of discontent. And it would be a really quite a marvelous thing in our lives and in our practice to feel what is present in this moment is really enough. Enough for kindness, enough for mindfulness, enough for wakefulness, enough for compassion, enough for understanding, enough for attentiveness. So joy, in a sense, is actually really being awake to what is. It's being awake to the whole of the moment. The other effect of cultivating joy is that it really, really is an antidote to contractedness. Now, contractedness is something really to be very, very sensitive to in your practice. Those moments when your world begins to shrink, the moments when your vision begins to shrink around a thought that is repetitive, around a desire that feels compulsive, the moments when we begin to obsess, repeating something again and again, the moment when we get lost in a mental state or in a hindrance, you can almost feel that sense of contractedness on a very, very cellular level. Your world is, sh- your mind is shrinking, and therefore your world is shrinking. And the cultivation of joy in those moments is actually to cultivate what is missing. How do we find that sense of spaciousness? How do we surround the obsessive thinking or the contracted mental state with a sense of spaciousness? And using our sense doors wisely here is really important. What does it mean to listen wholeheartedly? What does it mean to see wholeheartedly? To actually sometimes to come out of the mind and into the world is the cultivation of joy. When the Buddha spoke about this cultivation of joy, he said, Here, O monks, a disciple lets their minds pervade one quarter of the world with thoughts of unselfish joy, and so the second, and so the third, and so the fourth, and thus the whole wide world, above, below, around, everywhere equally, they continue to pervade with a heart of unselfish joy, abundant grown great, measureless, without hostility or ill will. And we can really get a sense, I think, in our own hearts, in our own minds, how hostility or ill will leeches the joy out of life. But hostility and ill will, of course, are not movements or energies that have a life of their own. Like all mental states, They really depend upon being fed. Being fed with thought, being fed with resistance, being fed with blame. And I think over and over again in this practice, we are really, really called upon to be aware of what we are feeding. Because what we feed will grow, will deepen, will strengthen. And when the Buddha talks about these qualities of kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity, he is really actually encouraging us to cultivate them. It is like the seeds of those qualities, they live within our hearts. 
you know, we have all inexperienced in our lives moments of, of quite altruistic joy, simple appreciation, simple gratitude. And yet the tendency to feed the unskillful seems to outweigh at times the tendencies to feed and nurture the skillful and the wholesome. And that's a change of direction that we make in this practice. Any moment of contractedness in the day, any moment of, of judgment, of blame, of hostility, of ill will, that is actually the moment to be aware of what we are feeding and what actually it might be possible for us to feed. Now, it's a kind of recovery of spaciousness. You know, we see that our life and our meditation can be so filled with projects and preoccupations, agendas, what we have to do, what we have to get, and how much in those projects and preoccupations we find find ourselves leaning forward, tilting forward into the next moment. When this is over, then it will be like that. And maybe I'll have a little happiness or a little joy. But that it's really understanding that preoccupations end when we put them down. That is really their nature. And the putting them down is not out of blame or judgment or shame, but the sense of really knowing where we are making our home, where we are abiding. You know, the Buddha talks about these sort of noble, awakened abidings. But the reality is there are many less noble and less awakened abidings when we are building in our own hearts and minds constructions that are rooted, rooted in selfing or aversion or ill will. These are the moments to cultivate joy. The quiet sense of appreciation of being. I mean, what you are doing actually here is remarkably wholesome. It's what the Buddha talks about cultivating a noble path. It's very easy to forget that, to feel like we're sort of chipping away at the rock face, you know, that we have something to achieve, something to become. What about just settling, cultivating that appreciation of the wholesomeness of what we are doing here? The Buddha speaks about the joy of renunciation, the joy of letting go. You feel that sometimes, don't you, when you step out of obsession? It's not only a sense of relief. That relief in itself is a sense of gladdening the heart, appreciating that shift from contractedness into greater spaciousness. The Buddha spoke about the joy of mindfulness rather than forgetfulness. This is actually what we cultivate in the practice, but we cultivate the practice with a heart of gladness. I mean, I know when you come into retreat centers, you know, you don't actually get the impression that these are the most joyful places on earth, do you? I mean, it does seem at times, you know, that this is, you know, this is serious stuff, you know, and we've got a big rock face to chip away. You know, but, and, and of course, a person's demeanor does not mean that there is an absence of joy, but sometimes it does. And it does mean, it doesn't mean walking through the house with an inane smile on your face, you know, or skipping down the hallways, you know, or coming into the meditation room singing little ditties, you know, that I'm so glad to be here and I delight in your being. But it is constantly 
checking in with that state of mind. How relational, are, what kind of relational attitude do we actually have to the moment? The cultivation of joy is not a denial of suffering. It is not a denial of pain. But it is knowing that pain and difficulty is far more easily embraced with kindness and compassion and a gladdened heart than with the kind of sullen endurance of the achieving mind of the, or the aversive mind. So I would really encourage you as you go through the days to really notice those moments when the heart becomes contracted. Where is it possible to connect with that which is well, with that which is lovely? Where is it possible to cultivate that spaciousness? Not a denial of what is there, but a shift in how we relate to what is present. We have to remember that mindfulness is not attitudinally neutral. If mindfulness was attitudinally neutral, it would just be a way of eyeballing the present more closely. If mindfulness is attitudinally neutral, it doesn't necessarily lead to any quality of transformation. There are many people in this world in different situations who are superbly mindful. You know, a shoplifter, a burglar is mindful. You know, a sniper is mindful. It doesn't necessarily lead to transformation of heart. The reality is that mindfulness is interwoven with these qualities of kindness, of compassion, of joy and equanimity. And this is actually what allows mindfulness to be a path of transformation. And so it is so important for us to stay close. Stay close to those qualities. Let them inform our practice. Let them inform how we relate to those around us. Let them inform how we relate to the world. Let them inform how we relate to our own minds, our own hearts, our own bodies. Is there kindness? Is there compassion? A gladdened heart? Is there equanimity? Then in that, those attitudes, wherever you are, and whatever you are experiencing, is actually enough. It is a sense of, as the Buddha calls it, a sense of abundance, a sense of sufficiency. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.